people don't invite you to tables. You make your place at the table. And so at some point, there's always going to be a person or people that think that you don't deserve to be there. And there's nothing that you can do about those people. But you can control your inner thoughts. If you have the self-confidence in yourself, I am very ill-concerned, and I say this all the time, about what other people think about me. Of course, I want to be respected. I want to be seen as leading with integrity. But that's determined by me not by other people. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our next guest is the Vice Chancellor and General Counsel for North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, the nation's largest historically Black college and university located in Greensboro, North Carolina. At North Carolina A&T, she provides counsel as the university's senior attorney and maintains responsibility for the supervision and administration of the Division of Legal Affairs, Risk, and Compliance, which consists of the Office of Legal Affairs, the Office of Enterprise Risk Management and Compliance, Title IX Office, and Office of Internal Audit. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Melissa Jackson-Holloway. Melissa, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor and a privilege to be talking to you today. I feel the same exact way. So, Melissa, I'm not sure if you know or not, but I ask every single guest for a little bit of gratitude at the beginning of every single episode. So if you could tell me, what is your favorite thing that happened today? So I will say this. I am grateful that I live in a household where I am loved because I got a late start to my day and I'm teleworking today. And I literally started on meetings at 745. And so when my husband started to move, he looked at me and he mouthed the words coffee (laughs) and a coffee cup and creamer and everything else was delivered to my desk as I sat on my third Zoom. So I am very grateful for a house that loves me and recognizes that I am a much better person caffeinated. That's love right there, Melissa. That is definitely It's definitely a keeper. I love that. That is a fantastic gratitude. So I want to get into your story. And specifically, let's start at your lawyer origin story. Did you always want to be a lawyer? Not always, but very early on. And I've probably told this story a million times when I was in the third grade. I had a wonderful teacher. Her name was Mrs. Saracen. So I always credit her with this. And we were given an assignment, sort of a mock trial exercise. And I had the responsibility of representing Goldilocks in a lawsuit against her filed by the three bears. (laughs) And we had to do witness prep and do all of these things. And ultimately, and this is third grade, I was able to get Goldilocks acquitted based upon the fact that I argued that she had narcolepsy. Now, that doesn't discount that she ate the porridge and she broke things, but that she fell asleep and was discovered by the bears. And so that, I think, combined with a very argumentative nature as a child, I was always the person standing up for what was right. And so my parents said, you know, you're going to be a lawyer someday. And I was like, sure, why not? (laughs) How did you know at the third grade? I don't think I knew what narcolepsy was at the third grade. How did you know that? 
I have no idea. And I don't know if it's talking to my older siblings or if I read something, but the average third grader is not aware of that particular ailment. And I think astute enough to argue that in a case involving Goldilocks and the Three Bears. So I don't know, but I think really for me, it was that teacher that saw something in me. I grew up in a very small town. I grew up with a very loving family surrounded by lots of very engaging women, none of whom had any formal education whatsoever, but were probably some of the smartest people that I knew. So I didn't know that being a lawyer was even something that I could do until this teacher sort of put that in my mind. And as soon as my parents heard that, they ran with it. Yeah. And yes, that is something that you definitely can do and should do. So Mrs. Saracen, you said, right? Yeah, Mrs. Saracen, yes. Third grade, 95th Street School. Mrs. Saracen is a hero to me. There are always these stories where there is this pivotal teacher that really helped the trajectory of someone and impacted them. When you have somebody who is teaching like Mrs. Saracen that really thinks outside the box and is like, I'm going to teach you about something, but I'm not just going to lecture you. I'm going to engage you in a way that also meets you where you are, aka Goldilocks. I think that's so great. And then really kind of empowers children to tap into their strengths. That's just like one of my favorite stories I've heard on the show, I think. Well, I appreciate that. And I know that she has since passed away. And I tell you this, I never had an opportunity to share with her how impactful that was. And so I tend to, whenever someone asks me a similar question, to try to share it. And I know I've had conversations with others that sort of had experiences with her. Like I said, I grew up in a small town. So when you're dealing with three or four elementary schools, you know, many people who would have gone through her classroom at points during her career. Absolutely. And they say that we live on through our stories. So you're helping her live on. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Niagara Falls, New York. I know most people don't think that people actually live there, but I tell people, people here in New York, and they assume New York City. And so I have to give people a geography lesson. (laughs) Um, I grew up eight hours from New York City, but I grew up seven minutes from the Canadian border. So as a kid, third grade, we would ride our bikes over the border. You paid a quarter to go through a, a walking turnstile. You didn't need a passport. You didn't have a cell phone. And we would spend the entire day in a foreign country. And as long as we were home before the street lights came on, everything was fine. <laughs> You've been a world traveler since a kid. A world traveler. And the biggest thing as a kid, there was a dividing line between the U.S. and Canada. And we would sort of straddle it and say, hey, look, I'm in two countries. And so we did that probably every weekend from the time that I was old enough to ride a bike without training wheels. (laughs) You have like the best stories already and we're only like two (laughs) minutes in. This is awesome. Well, on that note, let's continue. I'd love to learn more about your family. You said you were surrounded by a bunch of women that were incredible. Tell me about these women. So there were so many, some of whom I'm related to by blood and some who just were part of my village. My mom, Susie Jackson, had an eighth grade education. We lived in a small town. Everyone knew her because she was the head cook at Howard Johnson's. Now I'm really dating myself with that reference to Howard Johnson's and Hojo, but everybody knew her. And I mean, when you think about just resilience and the ability to do things, I used to wonder 
how does someone take a nickel and turn it into a hundred dollars? Whether that was food, whether it was providing my family, my siblings with everything we needed. And a lot of what we wanted, I have an aunt who lived in Niagara Falls as well, Annie Crittenden. She grew up on a farm in Union Springs, Alabama. I spent many summers there. And so came to the North looking really to make a better life for their families. And they did that. But then I also grew up in housing projects, the Niagara Falls Housing Authority housing projects. So there was just a number of women who are part of my community. I grew up at a time where it wasn't just your parent that could discipline you. And so anyone that witnessed you doing something that they thought was inappropriate, it was their responsibility to correct you as well as to inform your parents so that you could get further correction. So I think about Alice Jordan and Rosemary Taylor and Mary Emma Taylor and Mrs. Brown and all these people that really had their arms around me and their eyes on me and encouraged me to do great things. I think about my pastor's wife from my church. She was an avid reader and she knew that I was an avid reader. So literally she gave me everything from The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, the autobiography of Malcolm X, to every Harlequin romance that she could get her hands on. Heaving bosoms notwithstanding. I don't even know if I knew what that was. But I mean, literally, she would give me brown paper bags of books. And that was probably the first elderly African-American woman that I knew that had a college degree. She had a degree from Spelman. And I just was amazed that someone who had come from such meager beginnings was able to successfully you know, complete an undergraduate degree. That was probably the first person that I saw, hey, I could do this. Even though no one in my family has a degree, this is something that I could obtain because my circumstances are much better than the circumstances that she faced. And so literally Mrs. Ida Bradley, she was always there. She gave me piano lessons for a while. I wasn't very astute at that. And we finally decided that that was not going to be my ministry. But these are women that I knew. I don't remember a time when these women weren't in my life. My mom has passed away. My aunt is still alive. She's 93 years old. I talk to her probably every day. And it's still that person that encourages me to do more. She's, you know, the grandmother to the community. There's so many people that call her grandma that people assume that she's my grandmother. I'm like, no, she's actually my aunt, but I know she's the community's grandmother. So let's just take it from there. <laughs> What a beautiful thing to be surrounded by all of these amazing women who were supporting you and providing you examples and those lessons. I think the only thing I regret is that many of them passed away as I was matriculating into law school or graduating from law school. And you really want to be able to give back, whether that's financially or support. And so you sort of miss that opportunity to give back to them. And so my hope is that in giving back to others, that maybe, you know, 20 years from now, someone will be talking about the influence that I had on their life or 30 years from now, or at least at some point in the future. It is so beautiful, Melissa, truly. So you grew up with all these women. You go through high school. You go to college. Were you the first in your family to go to college? Yes. Yes, I was. Yes. 
first in the family to go to college, graduate, you have this third grade experience, right? Yeah. But how does it continue to develop into going to law school? I tell people often, I'm not quite sure if your personality drives your desire to become a lawyer or if becoming a lawyer drives your personality. I think there's probably a combination of both. And so I went to Syracuse University undergrad. I was a business major, but always still wanting to go to law school. And I think also this sense of a desire for racial equality, justice, all of these issues that you face, especially as an African-American child growing up and, you know, having positive and negative experiences in that space. And so I was interested in going to law school. And I don't know if you're familiar, New Yorkers have this skewed view of the world. There's the East Coast, there's the West Coast, and there's all the cow and fields in the middle. And so I started looking at law schools up and down the Eastern Seaboard. And I had a professor in undergrad that said, you really should explore other options. There's opportunities for you across the country. There may be funding opportunities for you that take you outside of this area and you really should explore it. And one of the institutions where he encouraged me to apply was the University of Wisconsin-Madison. My family and I literally pulled out the phone book and there was a map on the first page. We knew Wisconsin was sort of out there, Ohio, Michigan, somewhere, but not really. And so I had to say, okay, where is this? And for me, it was in the middle of nowhere. And my first question is, are there people of color that live in Wisconsin? And what will this experience be like for me? I applied at the urging of this professor and was accepted and received a full scholarship and didn't accept it. (laughs) I didn't accept it. I was not interested in going to Wisconsin. And literally, I received a call from the dean of the school, Daniel Bernstein at the time, he's now passed away, to say, you know, I was wondering why you hadn't accepted our offer. And I mean, this was literally like on a Friday night at home, the dean of the law school. And I was like, I'm not so sure about Wisconsin, never been there, not sure it'll be a good fit for me. So go, why don't we get you out here to, to check the campus out and see if it'll be a good fit. So I get on a plane, I go to visit. I fall in love with the campus. I fall in love with the law school. I see people that look like me, which was probably my biggest fear. And so I move across the country and I am one of those weird people. People talk about law school and the law school experience. I loved every moment of it. Every moment, the good, the bad, the ugly, the reading. I loved it. And anyone that you meet from my law school class, I took my husband to my law school reunion. He's like, why does everybody call you judge? And I was like, that's another story for another day. I would love to hear that story. Can you tell me that story? I had a classmate whose father was a federal court judge in New York City. And so he thought that, you know, he was very knowledgeable of the law. And so we, of course, had a reading that day. And I can't remember the topic. I remember the class was contract. He was on point to discuss the case and discuss the holding. And I thought that his analysis was incorrect. The professor asked if there's anyone else that had a different perspective. And I said, I do. I believe that he's focused too much on the dicta of the case and that the real holding is focused on X or Y or Z. And so we literally went back and forth on our assessments of the case for probably an hour and a half. 
Wow. With, with the faculty member facilitating this, of course. Um, and I think taking great pride in it, <laughs> actually, at the end, I was deemed to have given a more accurate description of the holding of the case and its applicability to future contract cases. So I was dubbed the judge. And so for the next couple of sessions, I was then given the responsibility to assess my classmates' perspective of additional cases. And so sometimes people like that and sometimes they didn't. <laughs> you know how law school can be. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> I absolutely do. But I love it. I love that you were were winning cases in law school and were actually deemed someone that should judge and gain that credibility. And I think that's absolutely incredible. At the time, I loved it. It's funny because the person, I won't say his name, but we're friends now. So we we became friends after that. But it really gave me a sense of confidence because one of the things I think we often face, especially people of color, often as women, no matter how much you've accomplished, you go into situations sometimes, and I hate to use this term, with a bit of imposter syndrome and wondering, why am I here? Should I be here? At some point, will someone find out that I'm not as smart or articulate or deserving? And so that really, during my first year, put me head to head with someone who I think saw me very differently. And I had to prove it to myself. So at some point, I was not proving anything to him or to the faculty member or to the others in my class. I was proving it to myself. And I thought I had done that, but you know, those doubts creep in even as a working professional, even after you have years and years of experience, sometimes you sit at a table and you wonder if you're supposed to be there and if other people are wondering whether you're supposed to be there as well. Yes. Do you have any advice to other people that experience that? I think for me, it's just sort of taking a step back. People don't invite you to tables you make your place at the table. And so at some point, there's always going to be a person or people that think that you don't deserve to be there. And there's nothing that you can do about those people. But you can control your inner thoughts. And so if you know that you deserve that place, if you're supposed to be there, if you can make contributions, and I tell students all the time, and if you don't, fake it till you make it. <laughs> And so I think it's really that self-confidence. And if you have the self-confidence in yourself, I am very ill-concerned. And I say this all the time about what other people think about me. And I sometimes that is taken differently, but I'm not. I'm not very concerned about what people think. Of course, I want to be respected. I want to be seen as leading with integrity. But that's determined by me, not by other people. I have to say, just being completely vulnerable, that I struggle with caring very deeply about what other people think of me. I'm always overthinking it. Where do you think it comes from? Like that ability to just say, you know what? It's about me and who I am inside. And I don't rely on other people to determine my value. Where do you think that comes from? Well, I think for me, number one, it comes from therapy. Everybody needs a therapist, by the way. Agreed. I think it comes from therapy. It comes from self-reflection. There's always a core group of people whether it's friends or family or colleagues that you trust. And those are the people and the voices that you listen to. And so if I am ever doubting myself, there is a whole subset of people that will help me recognize who I am, 
how much I've accomplished, what I have to contribute. And so I try to listen to those voices. So I try to keep a very small key set of folks around me that help me calm the noise of all the other people. And it's hard. And I say this all the time. I say I don't care. Of course I care. Everyone cares what other people think about them. But how much does it impact your day to day? I don't let it impact me enough such that I change who I am. And some people try to change who they are based upon you know, feedback they're receiving. And sometimes it's not even direct feedback. It's how you believe people are perceiving you. It's true. I mean, a lot of the times we're fortune telling, right? Like we, yeah. we think we know what people are thinking in their heads or what their narrative is. I think that's really key what you just said, which is that everyone does care, but you know, it's the decision to not change who you are based on what you think other people think of you. I like that. I'm going to be thinking a lot about that myself. So thank you for that. And being in higher education, it's interesting because I deal with a cross section of people. And one of the things I find has happened in my career over the years is that people assume that I am younger than I am. And so many times I'm having conversations with a senior faculty member or a senior leader, and they're telling me how higher education works. And it's always interesting to let them go down that sort of line of thought. And I'm never a person to go through my pedigree, but there have been times to say, well, you know, in my 30 years of legal practice, mm -hmm. as well as my 26 years in higher education, and I literally had someone ask me this week, how old are you? And I said, old enough to be sitting in this spot and old enough for you to be seeking out my counsel. You came to me because you needed something from me. And now you're questioning my ability to give it to you. Mm. So either you need it or you don't. Either you trust me or you don't. It's up to you, but... <laughs> I love the directest. Yes. I'm always going to say I have to be as upfront and direct as possible. And I think for me, being able to communicate who you are, what you expect, you have to build and develop those skills such that you stand up for yourself. Because if you don't stand up for yourself, no one else will often do that for you. Seems as though like over time you've developed this skill and we're able to yeah, do so. Definitely. So you mentioned 30 years of practice, 26 years in higher education. So it's yeah, it's almost 30 years, but I went into higher ed about 23, 24 years ago. So most of my practice has been in higher ed, and I spent three and a half, almost four years um, at a large firm as a litigation associate. So you know what that looked like, working very long hours every weekend for the bulk of that two or three years. And then I found myself about to have a child. I had my child. I came back to work. I had been working on some dealership cases before I left. And literally, I came back to work with a three-month-old and a senior partner in my firm said, we're going to have to send you to Texas to work on these issues. We anticipate you'll be there three months, maybe four. And I said, I really appreciate this opportunity, but I have a small child. And I will never forget this. He's like, well, you're going to have to figure that out. No, he did not say that. I remember that with such clarity. What I figured out is that I'd probably needed to find another place to work. Also figured out as I started to explore opportunities, are the things that I don't like about my current job inherent to that particular firm or are they inherent in firm life? And for me, I determined that they were inherent in firm life. And so I needed to find an alternative area in which I could practice 
where I could have a bit more work-life balance. And that's literally how I found my way to higher education. What an excellent question. For a lot of people not finding fulfillment in the firm that they're in, let's say currently, they might answer it differently depending on what they're looking for, right? But it is really important to know what is inherent in firm life. And for you to be able to identify that relatively early on, I think is also a gift. Part of it was just seeing the experience of other women at my firm. So seeing the churn of younger associates come and go, seeing what we would consider older partners start their families after they had achieved the partnership in the firm. And I looked around and I could throw a stone and find another firm, but I didn't think that the expectations would be any different. I was a single mom, so that complicated things as well. And so I just decided that I needed to look for something different. And I laughed because my first day in higher ed practice, I remember leaving the office about 5.30 or 6 and picking up my son. And I didn't know what to do. It's six o'clock. Like we've had dinner. Like, what do we do? Because before that, I would always come home. My son was a bit. He was wow. three years old. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wow, we could go to the park or ride bikes or do different things. And that's what we did. <laughs> I love that you were able to do that and to make the decisions that were great for you and your family. I was as well. And it's funny, my son always talks about growing up on a college campus. So, you know, from the time he was three until high school, he was always on a college campus and had that experience. We you know, went to higher education, legal conferences. He's like, yeah, the NACUA conference, the National Association of College and University Attorneys. That was our vacation every year. I was like, well, you went to great places. <laughs> and what an interesting experience for your son because you talk about early on, like growing up with these amazing women, but they didn't have yes. the opportunities to have that education. And now, you know, only a couple of generations later, your son is growing up like at universities. Yes. What an incredible thing. I thought he was a budding attorney at one point during his undergraduate career, and then he completely shifted. And so I don't know if he'll ever find his way back. What does he do now? <laughs> he actually he's, does data analytics for a company in New York City, and he loves that. He's living his best life. So, you know, that's what we do. We, we raise our kids to be independent. I love to hear, though, that he's happy. That's the most important thing there is that yeah. they're happy. So when you left the firm, did you know higher education was the way to go? Yeah, I did not. I started thinking about other opportunities. I started looking at municipal government. I remember looking at the EEOC, Department of Labor, and literally the managing partner of the firm where I worked was the chair of the University of Wisconsin Board of Regents. He and I were having a chat one day and I didn't tell him I was looking for a job. But he started talking about his role. And I will tell you, honestly, most law students at that time, and probably even most law students now, don't see higher education as a business. They've all experienced it from being a recipient of the benefits. And so when he started to talk about all the things that the Board of Regents was involved in, the hiring, the firing, the lawsuits, the contracts, the intellectual property... And I was like, wow, you know, how, how are the campus's staff legally? Does the firm represent them? He's like, no, the attorney general's office, they have their own staff. And I literally started to research and there was a campus 20 minutes away from my house where I applied for a job. And then, of course, there was a campus three hours away where I applied for a job. So, of course, I got an offer at the campus that was three hours away and had to relocate. I knew nothing 
about higher ed. And I laughed because I went to a meeting my first week and someone said, we're going to need you to give a presentation on FERPA. And I was like, sure. And then I went back to my computer and said, what's FERPA? Because <laughs> that's something that only higher education lawyers deal with. But, you know, law school doesn't teach you the law. It teaches you how to research and to look things up. And now it's funny because I'm now a nationally known expert <laughs> on FERPA. But that's many, many years later. What is FERPA? It's the Family Educational and Rights to Privacy Act. So it really protects the privacy of a student's educational records in terms of who has access. Remember years ago, they would post grades by social security number and those sorts of things. FERPA outlawed that as well. And it really gives the student the ability to control who has access to their educational records. And only higher education attorneys deal with FERPA. No one outside of that arena would even be familiar unless they're a parent familiar with their students' FERPA rights. Interesting. I had no idea. See? Yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> As you were talking about FERPA, I'm like, I need to ask. I don't know what FERPA is. And there's a laundry list of laws that are applicable at higher ed mm -hmm. that are not applicable anywhere else. But then higher ed is also subject to Title VII, Title VI, Title IX. And so I describe to law students when they say, well, what does a higher education attorney do? And I'm like, what don't we do? We're just like Coke or Pepsi or IBM. We're just like Hilton. <laughs> We're just like any restaurant chain. We have our own police department. We're a small municipality. We buy things. We create a product. That product just happens to be quality students that we hope will you know, change the world that we live in. And so literally there is not a day where there's not something new or novel that comes across my desk. And I love it because I'm really a general practitioner. I'm in a smaller office. And so I deal with everything from student issues, contracts, faculty issues, share governance, due process, First Amendment, and so on and so on and so on. So how long have you now been at the North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University? I've been at North Carolina A&T since May 2015. And so three years, half of which have been during the global pandemic. I serve as vice chancellor and general counsel. And so, of course, have senior level responsibility for all the legal issues, but then also have responsibility for compliance, enterprise risk management, internal audit, and Title IX. For those that don't know, North Carolina A&T is the largest HBCU in the country. We produce the largest number of African-American engineers of any institution. We are growing by leaps and bounds. I think with all the social unrest, especially that has happened the last couple of years, there's just been a resurgence in students wanting to attend HBCUs in a space and a place where they feel more comfortable and feel that they can develop skills, abilities, all those things. And so literally our campus is sort of this mecca for students. And I love being on campus. I tell folks the students keep me young. If nothing else, my vernacular needs to change. I know about social media platforms that the average mom shouldn't know about. And it burns my son when I ask him about something. He's like, oh, you've been talking to the students again, haven't you? <laughs> But it literally, for me, I think it goes back to the first part of our discussion. Education opened a window for me that would have never opened. And there was people that provided me with sort of a glimpse of what my future might look like if I was able to graduate from high school, graduate from college, attend law school. And so being able to do what I love, 
being a lawyer in a setting that supports other students that look like me in doing the same thing. And I think the thing that I focus on the most is that I thought I was a smart student. When I look at some of our students, I'm not quite sure what was in the water that they drank, but we were in our senior leadership meeting yesterday and we talked about one of our recent fashion merchandising students that landed a multi-million dollar deal with Shein. Wow. We had a student recently design a tennis shoe sneaker for our institution for Nike, a currently enrolled student. Wow. I was like, I wasn't designing shoes for Nike when I was in college. They had businesses, they're entrepreneurs. I think I just had a work study job (laughs) when I was an undergrad. Why do you think that is? I think number one, many of our students just come with a drive that is much different than maybe we had. I think they're also encouraged by faculty to just try things, even if you fail. And so I have never heard a faculty member and administrator be a dream killer. If we're going to use a term with our students, try it. If it doesn't work, you'll try something else. If that major doesn't work out for you, explore. Do everything you can. Take advantage of every opportunity. And then we benefited from many corporations that want partnerships with us. So at any given day, Google's on our campus. Facebook is on our campus recruiting. Cisco, all these large corporations. So they have these opportunities in college that we were trying to get as first opportunities with degrees yeah. <laughs> or with master's degrees. And so you have a student has had four or five internships over the course of four years. They have a job. That definitely was not my experience in college. I had no idea what was going on. I was having a great time. I love to learn, but I definitely did not have a plan. That is fantastic. Many students I meet have jobs right now when they graduate in May. And so they just have a different drive and a different work ethic. And I think very entrepreneurial. You mentioned earlier that with all the social unrest, especially what's happened in the last couple of years, that there's been a resurgence and students wanting to attend HBCUs in a space and a place where they feel more comfortable and that they feel they can develop skills and abilities. How do you see your role helping to facilitate that? So I think there's a couple of things I would say. It is hard when you're in a support role. So I'm not a faculty member. I'm not standing in front of students every day. So sometimes when your job is a bit disconnected from the educational experience, it's hard to see how you contribute. So I think for me, number one, my campus, and I think many HBCUs, focus on diversity and equity and inclusion, but they also focus on belonging. Our students feel like they belong on our campus, but I feel like I belong on my campus. And I tell you this, I have worked for predominantly white institutions, PWIs and HBCUs. And I will just be honest with everyone listening. Everything about who I am is a little bit different (laughs) in those settings. I am able to do a little bit less code shifting I'm able to be a little bit more myself. I feel a bit more comfortable. So I think for me, it's that piece. And I tell you this, I am very connected with the campus community. And this is important for our entire leadership team. So I'm not just a lawyer. I'm at all the football games. I'm at all the basketball games. I try to engage in the theater and creative arts. And I do this probably to my president's dismay. I also teach a course to our student leaders about how to advocate for themselves. 
So my president might call that a protest class, but it's not really a protest class, but I understand that students want to advocate. And so for me, I want to ensure that they're advocating in the right places or spaces. And so I give you an example. We had a set of students come to our board of trustees meeting to protest tuition and fee increases. Our campus board of trustees doesn't set our tuition and fees. Our system board of governors does that. So I'm not saying you don't protest, but you have to protest with the people that actually make the decisions. I literally teach a course on sort of the rules of the road and who has responsibility, what vice chancellors on our campus are responsible for what areas. And so if you have an academic concern, you need to be going to the provost office and this is where it is. Many of my colleagues love me for that. And the first slide on my presentation for this course is me standing um, at Syracuse University when we had an overnight sit-in at the administration building. And of course, I'm standing with one fist up in the air, power to the people. And so I said, I too was you one day. <laughs> they love that picture. You have said so many things right now that I am just like so in awe of. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> you did say, I feel like I belong. And I think that's so important because if you're any institution that cares deeply about belonging, it starts, or at least it's a true reflection when the people that work at that organization, the leadership in that organization feels belonging. Because if they can't, then how is everyone else going to feel that way? Exactly. So right on. The fact that you feel like you belong, that shows that the school actually practices what they're preaching. In addition to that, this advocating class is incredible to me because you have to educate people on all aspects, even if that means that's how to challenge the organization yeah. that you go to school at or that you work for, right? So important from an accessibility perspective, because I mm -hmm. think that a lot of times so many people who need to get stuff that they need done or they need to challenge the things get so bogged down in like, even who do I ask? And to be able to provide that kind of education really helps provide the access that's needed so that people can get the things that they needed done and expedites that process for everyone. So I am just in awe of you, Melissa. Truly, this is fantastic. The work that you do is really important. I appreciate that. When I look at our students, the most meaningful time for me every year is at commencement. And we have over 13,000 students. At any given time, we are graduating 2,500, 700. We call every single name. Last May, our graduation was four and a half hours. <laughs> we call every single name because it is so important. A third or more of our students are first-generation college students. They have 20, 30 people in that audience from grandmothers to aunties to family members that want to see that person walk across the stage and just the joy that you see in those faces. And my hope is that I can just say, I knew Lisa Smith or Stanley Jones or whoever it was back when he was an undergraduate. I contributed in some small way to his or her success. That's beautiful. I'd love to get to some of the rapid fire questions if that works for awesome. you. Awesome. Works for me. What does leadership in law mean to you? I think leadership in law for me means leading with integrity, but I think more importantly, I believe that my role as a leader is to develop future leaders. And so in every position that I've held, my goal is if I win the lottery, get hit by a bus, whatever might happen is that there is a person who is well-prepared 
to slide into my chair so that the institution or place that I serve does not miss a beat. And I think that there is so much meaning to what you just said, because even though, yes, like you're creating future leaders so that if you had to leave, someone could take your place. You work for an institution that's creating future leaders as an organization, too. I mean, everything that you've talked about is about the development of future leaders. And so I think that that has this beautiful double meaning, too. I agree. If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? I would improve the work-life balance because even in higher ed, I work a lot. (laughs) I probably work as much. I probably don't work as much on the weekends, but I work a lot. And it's even harder sometimes for me to disconnect because it's more important to me now than it was then. But we really need to work on that because you see significant burnout. You see significant drug addiction, alcohol addiction. People just deciding that, you know, the legal career is no longer for them. And so I'm not quite sure how we get there without some pushback from folks that even though we recognize it's important, we still don't even do it for ourselves. It is such an important issue. I mean, it's the million dollar question. It is definitely. And if somebody solves it, I don't know if it'll be us, but they'll be very successful. (laughs) Absolutely. 100%. What is something that other lawyers seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? they don't understand the university as a business. So the average lawyer that I interact with, the first thing they say is, well, you represent students. And that's the thing that I can't do (laughs) because I represent the organization and the institution. So I think there's a misunderstanding or a misperception that the university, a university is any different from any Fortune 500, 200 company and that we operate and do many of the same things that those organizations do. What is a piece of practical advice you can give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in the law. I think it's develop a sense of self-confidence such that even when other people doubt you, you don't doubt yourself. How do you do that? It takes time. I think it takes a circle of people that you can go to and seek out support when you're not feeling that way. And I think at some point you have to recognize, I really know what I'm talking about. People come to me for advice because they value it. They see me not only as a competent lawyer, but in my particular setting as a valued business partner. I get involved in so many issues that have no legal ramifications whatsoever. I just think my vantage point is valued. And so once you see that and you see how other people value you, it goes a long way. And I think you valuing yourself. I really love that because... It's really taking the guesswork that we were talking about earlier about like, what are people thinking? Am I valuable? All of that stuff and saying, look at the facts, actually. Look around you. Look at the people that come to you on a regular basis asking you for advice. Look at what happens after that happens. And really using that as a data point versus like some fortune telling that we're using in our head about what people are thinking. One thing I tell students all the time, I was like, spend a little time chronicling your success. I mean, that could be as little as I made it through the day when I didn't want to get out of bed (laughs) Um, or I gave great advice or someone took my advice and this is the outcome of it. And we don't do that enough. And I I journal quite a bit. And so there's times when I just need to, what did I accomplish this week? And sometimes it's tasks, and sometimes it's, you know, I was the bigger person at a time when I could have clearly gone low. (laughs) 
Yeah. And I went high. And I tried to do that on a weekly and it's in my work journal too. So it's like my calendar, my work journal. I don't have time to keep multiple documents. So everything's there so I can refer back to it. Chronicling your successes. That's excellent advice. I'm going to start doing that. And there's going to be times when you can't think of anything to write and go back and look. Because guess what? You're not going to have wins every day. Right. <laughs> and so go back and say, well, you know, today wasn't a great day, but yesterday was and hopefully tomorrow will be better. Yeah. And even just sitting down and taking the time to try to chronicle your uh, successes is a success, right? Yes. Yes. Taking that time. All right. Final question. What do you do for self-care? I'm a runner. I'm a jogger, I should say. And I tell you this, I am a Peloton enthusiast. <laughs> I'm on that bike or tread almost every day. And I recently discovered yoga. And I tell you, it was something that I didn't find easy at first, but it literally can be as much of a workout physically as well as sort of a mind cleansing exercise as running or as the bike. So yoga has become my new passion, but anything Peloton is a in heavy rotation for me right now. Absolutely. And Peloton has great yoga classes. They have excellent yoga classes. Chelsea Jackson Roberts, if anybody's on the platform, I love Chelsea Jackson Roberts. I love her. She's an HBCU graduate. I believe she does a happiness meditation too, which I like really enjoyed. I'm also a big fan of Peloton. The biggest joke is my husband asked me, have you ever made it to the end of a meditation? I was like, meditations have an end. I just fall asleep. <laughs> it's the best way though. It is it's so best, calming. the best way, yes. <laughs> Well, Melissa, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. This has been such an incredible conversation. I admired you before, but now I really got to know you at a deeper level. And I want to thank you for all the work that you're doing. And I want, I want to say the same. I was so impressed. I listened to a couple of episodes, you know, before we talked. And I'm just so impressed with the work you're doing and the fact that you're giving folks like me this platform. And I just love the gratitude. I had to think about that because we really, as we talk about chronicling successes, Think about what you are grateful for each day. And I think everybody can find something, whether it's that cup of coffee or in the end, just waking up. Some yeah. people didn't do that <laughs> this morning. That's so. absolutely true. Yes. If anyone wanted to actually get in touch with you, what is the best way they could connect with you? I would say LinkedIn is probably the best place. Melissa Jackson Holloway, you can find my LinkedIn profile. If you're interested in learning more about North Carolina A&T, and I do want to give a plug. Higher education attorneys probably have one of the best professional organizations in the country, the National Association of College and University Attorneys. And I have the privilege of being the chair elect. And so next year I will be the chair for that organization. And they are literally the largest small law firm that you will ever come in contact with. And there has never been a person that I have not been able to call to get an answer to some question that I just didn't have the answer to, but someone was knocking on my door and needing an answer sooner than I could research it. <laughs> That's great. What a community. And also congratulations. Oh, thank you. On, on being the chair. Thank you very much. More work, more problems, but you know, that, that's what we do. <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> Melissa, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I know our listeners are going to find so much value in this conversation. And maybe we can talk again in a year and see how things are going. Please let me know. I'd be glad to come back and glad to provide any service that I can. But once again, thank you for what you do. And awesome podcast. I know this is something that'll be on my rotation during my run. 
Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers Who Lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.